Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. The English language is one of the most interesting languages out there. It's often a mismatched hodgepodge of French, German, Latin, and particularly for anyone learning it as a second or third language, can be particularly difficult. For starters, the word phonetic begins with a PH, the word lisp has an S in it, and the word yacht has spelling that makes absolutely no sense to anyone who speaks a phonetical language like Korean or Russian. The English language, however, does come with one superpower though. And that's the fact it's the world's primary language of money and second language of communication. And what I mean by this is that you can go to a rural airport in the back of Iran, or a dual military civilian airport in somewhere in Russia, or you can even catch an interregional train out of China, and right there on the signs in the informational language, you're very likely to find an English translation. It's something that's almost completely unique to the English language, and something that almost every English speaker frankly takes for granted. And this English translation in the Tehran airport isn't some UN law that's been put in place or a US outreach program. The reason the English translation is there is simply because English has become the language that a lot of people, particularly those who are wealthy enough to travel, may have adopted as their second language. And this phenomenon also largely applies to money. You see, much like the English language, the US dollar reigns supreme as the global de facto reserve currency, and for somewhat good reasons. But like the English language, there's no law that demands people do their business in USD, but people use it because it's usually the cheapest and most efficient currency to do business with, and also comes with a whole lot of pre-existing infrastructure set up for facilitating international transactions. Someone trying to do cross-border trade US dollars are easy to acquire, they're fairly stable in price, and they're one of the only currencies that, frankly, because of the fact that oil is traded in US dollars, almost everybody has a use for. Even if you don't do any business with the United States, US dollars will still be a method that most parties involved in the transaction will be comfortable with. But the US isn't the only superpower anymore, and more and more of global commerce is being done with countries like China, Russia, and the BRICS nations. And if more of the international commerce is moving towards the global south, will our reserve currency do the same? Why is it that Australia would have 60% of its foreign currency reserves held in US dollars, when frankly we do way more business with Korea, Japan and China than we do with the US? Whether it be politics in the Middle East or expanding overseas military influence, countries like China and Russia are seeking to play a larger role in the world stage, and many are beginning to speculate that China has their sights set on positioning its own currency, Yuan, as the alternative global reserve currency. But how would a country go about doing that? Would it be actually possible for the Yuan to gain the influence that the dollar currently has? And why are we seeing such a massive uptick in stories about financial alliances and broad-based de-dollarization, as well as a wide-ranging uptick 
in the purchases of gold. If the US could be pushed off their financial throne, who would be most likely to take their position? The Chinese, the Russians, the BRICS, or could it even be the Saudis or the Europeans? Well, these are all questions we're going to be tackling here today to try and figure out if the rumors are true and what we're seeing is the beginning of the death of the dollar. But to help us understand how we got here and to help understand just how much influence this infrastructure has in our day-to-day -day lives and trade markets, we turn to our first guest. Part one, when the price is right. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have quite a lot of countries which are sort of in between, as you like, like India, which are courting China and Russia at present. So we are possibly talking about new monetary alliances forming themselves. And uh, people are now beginning to talk about whether that really means that trade will be increasingly denominated in other currencies like the Chinese renminbi, and whether that will then overtake what has been going on for so many decades now in terms of the supremacy of the US dollar. Vicky Price is a British economist and the former joint head of the United Kingdom's Government Economic Service. She's also currently the Chief Economic Advisor at the Center for Economics and Business Research, a former board member, chief economist and partner at KPMG, and a visiting professor at Birmingham City University and King's College in London, and is a renowned expert on national level macroeconomics. And we're thrilled to have her on the program today. Over 50% of international trade is still denominated in US dollars. And if you look at reserves that are held by countries, something like 60%, if not more, of reserves are in US dollars. And that's also a reflection of what's happening in China, which has one of the biggest reserves in the world. And the US dollar is in there and very prominent. Lots of other currencies, of course, are creeping up a little bit in terms of their importance. The Europeans have been very keen to ensure that the euro uh, which is a single currency there. There are now 18 countries. Now we've got Croatia in there as well. So the euro is becoming increasingly a more accepted international reserve currency. About 20% of all reserves are right now in euros. Uh, we've seen, of course, at various stages, the Japanese yen being quite important now, sort of less so, about 6%. Uh, and sterling, talking to you from London, uh, which was a supreme in the last century, is now held, you know, in terms of reserves, uh, represents only about 4% of those reserves. The, the Chinese renminbi way down at around 2%. And then, of course, you've also got the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar, which are held by various Asian nations uh, too. So the dollar still dominates. 
when trade stopped for quite a large part of the time. And now, of course, supply chains are being rebuilt. Now we've seen the US dollar used increasingly again, and there is an issue about it. And the issue is that it's a big country with a big economy, about 20% of GDP worldwide. It issues and prints a lot of dollars. Lots of dollars are held, banknotes even, are held outside the country. It's very liquid. That, of course, has been uh, one of the major reasons why people feel confident in terms of keeping that exchange rate. Yes, it goes up and down, of course, and it could cause loads of problems for countries that have borrowed in dollars. Uh, at a time like now, for example, when interest rates are going up, even though the dollar is not hugely strong at present by comparison to some of the other currencies. Uh, but overall, you know, having that depth in liquidity and that stability, if you like, in terms of its economy and the fact that it's very unlikely to default whatever may be happening with the debt ceiling right now in the US means that the dollar still remains very much dominant. So I think it might be pertinent to lay some oversimplified groundwork here on currencies and the global foreign exchange market. So to go through it, each country's reserve bank will hold a bunch of their own money, which can be used for all sorts of things from buying weapons to building bridges. But they'll also hold a bunch of other currencies as well. Now, for simplicity, we use Australia as an example here, as it's a little less complicated than the US. But for Australia, we keep about $94 billion worth of foreign currencies held in reserve, with about 60% of that being held in US dollars, 21% of that being held in euros, 6% of that being held in Japanese yen, 2.5% being held in Chinese yuan, and 1% being held in Canadian dollars and Swiss francs. And then there's a spattering of other little currencies as well. Now these currencies are very useful for doing international trade. So for instance, if we wanted to buy some barrels of maple syrup from Canada, we could either trade them some coal or venomous animals for it, or we could simply use the Canadian dollars we have lying around to make those purchases. But either way, we're saving on the transaction costs. But that's not the most important aspect of foreign currencies, as foreign currencies help to influence the strength of our own dollar. To explain, the strength of our dollar can go up and down. One Australian dollar could be worth 65 US cents or 75 US cents, and how strong it is has big determinants in the wider economy. So let's say for the sake of the argument, Australia wanted to make their dollar stronger and make it cheaper for Australians to buy goods from overseas, as we get more US dollars back for every dollar we put into the market. Now, if we wanted to do that, we could sell a bunch of national assets like bonds to buy back heaps of the Australian dollars sitting on the market. And with less supply of Australian dollars, the price of each dollar comparatively goes up. And now people are paying 75 cents for each Australian dollar they buy rather than 65 cents. And whilst all of that sounds great and Australians can now buy more goods from overseas, it also has impacts on our own market at home. Those extra goods we buy from overseas will hurt local manufacturers to begin with but it will also make the situation for foreign companies wanting to do business in Australia more expensive, as they now have to pay more and more for each dollar they buy. And with business becoming more expensive in Australia, they may choose to go elsewhere like Canada or Vietnam to get their goods. Therefore, businesses have less money coming in and they end up firing more staff. So making currency too strong can have adverse effects in your economy. But the process works in reverse as well. The Australian government could lower the value of the Australian dollar, therefore boosting local demand, as the lawnmower you're about to buy from Japan now just became more expensive than just buying a local one. But it would also make doing business within Australia comparatively cheaper. So more countries may choose to move their operations to Australia as it just became cheaper to do business here. So more people might become employed, but those people who are being employed have less strength when it comes to buying stuff from overseas. Domestic businesses who also rely on buying input materials from overseas just had their input costs go way up, and any debt repayments we have 
that would be denominated in US dollars, for example, would also become more expensive to pay back. So it's all about finding a balancing act. Now, what currencies we keep in reserve are also incredibly important, as whilst you want to put most of your bets on stable currencies that will hold their value for a decade, you also don't want to commit too much to just one currency in case there's a shock like a debt ceiling collapse. So in summary here, countries tend to keep their reserve currencies quite high, so they have enough set aside to boost or weaken their currencies for economic reasons. And the amount of Australian dollars they either put into the market or buy back from the market can determine how strong the dollar is. But it is important to find a balance that doesn't have negative impacts on too many sectors of your economy if you go too far one way to the other. Strong currencies are great for the mining sector, but they're awful for the tourism sector. So Vicky, now we've covered that and people understand that Australia has lots of different currencies held in reserve. Can you take us through why nations like Australia and the US keep around 85% of their reserve currencies held in denominations like the US dollar, the euro, or the Japanese yen, and don't tend to keep currencies like the Chinese yuan held in large amounts of reserves, even though that for many of these countries, China might be their largest trading partner. Can you take us through why there is this difference between what countries we trade in and what currencies we hold in reserve in our central banks? The problem with China in particular is, of course, you've seen various stages when, you know, they're exercising the, the type of sort of monetary policy and capital controls, which can affect A, the value and B, how much is issued in the country. You know, what happens with monetary policy matters hugely. And that tends to be, to a considerable extent, a disincentive for anyone to, to be holding. You know, what could change things, of course, is if in terms of payments for its exports, there is an increasing requirement that everything is settled and paid in the Chinese one. So if that is the case, then and countries therefore cannot trade with China unless they do that, then of course things can change. There is a limit to how much of that you can do because there are always concerns about the state of particular regimes, if you like. But also even when you look at Russia following the invasion of Ukraine, it did for a while uh, in order to get the ruble to regain some of the value that it had lost shortly after the invasion. They had capital controls and they basically worked very hard to ensure that there was an outflow of rubles and therefore that the value went up and it worked. But you cannot hold the currency which is liable to be used for those reasons uh, with any certainty if you're going to use it as a reserve currency. So another quick bit of groundwork here about current and capital accounts. Now, again, to vastly oversimplify, let's imagine a scenario where Australia wants to trade $100 worth of venomous spiders to Canada in exchange for $125 US worth of maple syrup. Now, obviously, the value of that deal is not completely equal. So in the end, there will be more money going one way than the other. So the Australian buyer here could theoretically go down to an exchange house, convert some Australian dollars to Canadian dollars, and send Canada 169 Canadian dollars. With Canada then going down to their exchange house, converting some Canadian dollars to Australian dollars, and sending Australia back 150 Australian dollars. And then the goods change hands. Or the two could use what's called a current account, as a current account would simply work out the difference in payments between the transactions. And instead, Australia would send the spiders and 33 Canadian dollars, and Canada would send back the maple syrup. But Australia would still need to convert Australian dollars into Canadian dollars in order to do the transaction, which will incur a fee. So instead, Australia and Canada, who both buy and sell in US dollars all the time, may decide to use US dollars for the transaction, meaning that Australia sends the spiders and 25 US dollars, and Canada sends the maple syrup, and no one loses money in transaction fees. Now they've still done 338 Australian dollars worth of trade, 
but business just became a lot easier by Australia just sending the additional 25 US dollars, which Canada can then use to trade with countries all over the world. And this quite often occurs. Companies, trading houses, and banks may often just wait till the end of the day and work out what the difference of money in and money out is and pay whatever the remainder is so as to avoid billions of dollars worth of needless transactions, costs, and tiny transfers. And even though this spider for syrup deal was done between two non-US countries, the US dollar still ended up serving as the easiest method of doing business. So Vicky, do you think people often misunderstand that this is all going on behind the scenes? And whilst you might have India offering billions of rupees worth of trade with Russia, that it may be far less than people think it is. As if the two countries are trading a relatively similar amount of goods, the actual money that changes across the border is only the differential between what one country sends and the other country sends. And then the deal may be conducted in rupees, but how much of the good like oil or wood may still be measured in US dollars. Sending 100 US dollars worth of oil is the exact same as sending 8,200 rupees worth of oil. So the US dollar setting the price of petrol still completely sets the price of oil being traded even if you're proclaiming that you'd be trading for that oil using rupees. So do these announcements that countries will be doing business in currencies like rupees or yuan actually make much of a difference if it's a commodity that's volume is measured in USD worth of? Or if there's a relatively small amount of currency actually crossing the border, as the amount of goods they're trading between themselves is relatively similar. Do these big announcements actually make as much of an impact as they tend to proclaim they will? It doesn't really make a huge amount of difference. However, what does make a difference is that if there is any concerted effort to say, manipulate a currency or, or behave in a certain way that changes the value of the dollar, uh, because so much of it is held outside. If you're trying to do something with your own currency and you've got all these dollars perhaps you can use in a certain way, you can use the reserves to either move your possibly you know, currencies uh, up at various stages or down at various stages. That could, of course, affect the value of the dollar, which could go down. It could therefore affect costs of imports. And then those that have borrowed in US dollars find it very, very difficult to survive. So there are serious obligations with being you know, or having the status of a, the largest reserve currency in the world. Now, one of the main reasons that the US became the global reserve currency is that it's a free-floating currency with a large economy to back it and its price dictated by the market. And to lay one more bit of groundwork to understand what that all means for people who haven't gone through that before, is that oversimplifying, there are usually three types of currencies. The first being closed currencies. And these are currencies like the Uzbek Som or the Iranian Rial, which the government doesn't trade outside its own borders to prevent market manipulation or runs on the bank. But because the currency is completely traded within, they can change the value or print money at any time they see fit. The second category is manipulated currencies. And these are currencies like the Russian ruble or the Chinese yuan, which do trade across borders and are held in reserve by some countries. But these countries still have a degree of capital control in their currency where they can artificially inflate or deflate its value. And this tends to scare away a lot of investors, as why would you put all your money in yuan or rubles when Xi or Putin could simply wake up one morning and decide to arbitrarily raise or lower its value, to boost or hinder a particular industry within the country? The third and the most important category for this conversation today are free market and free floating currencies. These are currencies like the United States dollar, the British pound, and the euro which have their value mostly determined by market forces and supply and demand. But whilst this makes investors feel confident that the value of a dollar is pretty much the actual value of what the market feels that dollar is worth, for governments, it makes it far more difficult and far more expensive to implement policies to inflate or deflate the value of the currency 
rather than just pulling a lever like Xi and Putin can do, countries like Australia have to buy and sell parts of its reserves or sell off state assets and use their own money to attempt to marginally influence the free market's valuation of their currency. Now, China is often accused of artificially deflating the value of the yuan to make it comparatively cheaper to do manufacturing from within China, which keeps more Chinese people employed. Which, if that is the case, what would China gain from being the global reserve currency, as surely that would require relying on the market to set the value, which has been something that China has been quite averse to over the years? What would China get out of being in that position and removing that policy tool from themselves? I think it's status up to a point. And if there is a serious sort of geopolitical divide that, that starts to develop in earnest, and we're seeing the beginning of that perhaps happening since the war in Ukraine, but also earlier with the trade wars under Trump in particular, then it may think that there is a real advantage in not relying on the dollar and having you know an easier time in terms of its exports and imports if it does it in its own currency. Of course, it cuts quite a lot of the costs there, the cost of hedging and everything else. And it also establishes its position, possibly, with whoever is importing or exporting with China. So it certainly makes life easier from that point of view. But yes, if that were to happen, then it probably wouldn't need to get into the position of having to manipulate currency for its exports, although it depends, of course, what the situation is in other let's say, Asian countries or anywhere else where it sells its products, it may still need to do that. So it does not mean that if you have a reserve currency, your currency can't go up, up and down. Of course, the West with completely free movement of exchange rates now, that means that currencies can go up and down anyway, but they go up and down mostly in relation to what the economy is doing and what interest rates are doing rather than anything else. These free floating currencies do give investors a high level of confidence when deciding where to park their money. But free floating currencies are also highly susceptible to inflation. Now, some inflation is good, as it discourages people from just sitting on their money and pushes them to spend it in the economy more quickly. As with each year that passes, it's comparatively worth less. But high inflation really does hurt the average consumer, as cost of living begins to rise quickly. And with this in mind, I think it's worth answering a question that I'm seeing pop up a lot of the moment on online forums. That question being, why don't we just go back to when the US dollar was backed by gold and tie one US dollar to being worth X amount of gold, thereby maintaining each dollar's value rather than giving the government the ability to simply print more? If we were to go back to that system, what would be the impact on the economy? Uh, what an interesting question. Uh, that, of course, was given up in 73. We moved to a proper floating exchange rate rather than having the dollar convertible to gold. I mean, that's something that has been abandoned simply because it was not sustainable at the time. I mean, if you look at what had been happening after the Second World War, what we saw was that this convertibility was threatened because you needed to have enough gold to, to cover all the dollars that were in circulation at various stages outside the US. Well, if the US was the one that was guaranteeing that, then that made life very difficult. And so that's basically why it was finally abandoned, because if there was any run uh, at all on the dollar, if you like, that would wipe out all the US gold reserves and more. So you can't really do this. I think we've now moved far too far away from any fixed exchange rate system. And currencies can now move up and down, mostly in the West, without any intervention, if you like, or without any guarantee of where they might stop. And look what happened in the UK when we had our mini budget back in September and the pound fell 
very, very significantly to almost parity against the dollar. It's recovered a lot since, of course, but that's how it is. And, and I think the world has got used to this, but it does have consequences without any doubt, both in terms of inflation and in terms of, you know, if you like, stability for a large part of the world if those currencies vacillate as much as that. So the US dollar isn't backed by gold, but the price of oil is often backed by the US dollar for the majority of the world's oil consumers. So with oil mostly being bought and sold and using US dollars, and this commodity being quite closely tied to the value of the dollar, as the price of oil rises and falls, what impact does that have on the actual value of the US dollar? So we've seen the value of one of the price of oil come down quite significantly uh, recently. And there had been this expectation that because China was coming back into the market and also because of OPEC cuts that we we're going to see oil prices go up quite significantly. And of course, because they are denominated in dollars, generally, you would also expect that perhaps the dollar would do particularly well when oil prices are high. But it didn't actually do so necessarily over the period of high petrol prices. And what we've seen recently, of course, is with those prices coming down. And despite the fact that interest rates have been quite high in the US, but up to a point, the petrol dollar link is a little bit there and d demonstrable. But nevertheless, what you've seen is that uh, the dollar has been relatively weak by comparison to other countries. But I think this has much more to do recently with the relative expectations of what's going to happen to interest rates in the US and Europe and the UK and elsewhere, rather than with anything to do with the price of oil. We're seeing a lot of central banks around the world trying to tackle the inflation issue by raising interest rates, making it more expensive to borrow money, buy more goods and expand businesses, with the hopes of lowering overall consumer spending and demand to curb inflation. The trouble with this strategy, though, is that a lot of the current inflation in the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia is supply-driven inflation. You see, with China going offline for a while, they were making far less goods. And with the market demanding the same amount of goods, but far less making it to market, people began outbidding each other for these smaller amounts of goods that made themselves available. With this outbidding, therefore inflating the prices of these goods. If these banks are trying to use a demand-curving method of raising interest rates, will that solve the problem of inflation if there's also massive supply-driven inflation as well? Well, the problem right now, of course, is that there's still a need to do an awful lot of spending in the economy. And if you look at what's, what's going on in the US with the extra support that's going to be given to uh, sectors to uh, tackle climate change in particular, you know, the real big subsidies that are going to be given, a lot of extra stimulus is going to be given to the economy. And if you don't have QE, then you end up with interest rates being higher than would otherwise be the case. So that's a bit of an issue. And we've got that happening also in Europe to a very considerable extent. So there could be a reversal of that policy. We've seen reversals of those policies before, and it could happen again as long as the sort of markets accept it, if you like. So it's a bit of a conundrum, actually, in terms of where we'll end up and how growth will happen in the future without interest rates being very high. And then, of course, the implication of all that on the exchange rates and also the, the attractiveness of particular currencies that you want to keep as reserve currencies. So if the dollar stays reasonably strong, then you know, obviously the value as reserve currency is, uh, is, is okay. But if you borrowed in dollars, then you've got the problem that I said earlier of countries, in heavily indebted countries being in difficulty. So yes, interest rates are going to be very important uh, looking ahead, uh, both for the value of the currencies, but also where we're going with the economy. And, and frankly, if it is proven to be the case in the end, as many people believe that the problems are all 
caused by international factors, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, supply chain issues, food prices, of course, which had gone up very significantly, droughts, which are making that worse, rather than anything domestic, then the increase in interest rates we've seen and the reversal, if you like, of the monetary policy into a tightening rather than easing may simply bring the economies down and cause the recession that we've all been trying to avoid. So with Western nations heading into this financial storm, it sets up a pretty precarious situation. Now, if we were to believe some of the rumours that float around Twitter and Saudi Arabia were to use this instability to announce that it would no longer be selling oil in US dollars, do you think it would become the death nail in the Western economies or wouldn't actually make that much of a difference anyway? It's a very difficult question to answer. I don't see that it would be in the interest of Saudi Arabia to do so. So I think it's an unlikely scenario, but it could be tried to a smaller extent. And if it does, I, I think it's probably not going to work because Saudi Arabia needs the US dollars just as much as anyone else because, of course, it then invests huge amounts of what it collects, if you like, in terms of selling its oil and invest this all across the world and a lot of it, of course, in the West and a lot of it in the US. So it would have wanted, I'm assuming, the guarantee of a stable environment and a liquid currency that it can use for the future for whatever investments it wants to make and to get a reasonable return as a result, to have the type of, if you like, war between itself, that's the Middle East, and the rest of the world when those revenues that it collects are so important for it would suggest to me that it wouldn't make a huge amount of sense. And that's why I lean towards thinking that this is unlikely to happen. Of course, they do have a huge amount of power. And we see that every time they cut production significantly, not when they cut it a little bit, but when they cut it significantly. But we also see, of course, that usually that doesn't last very terribly long because if the economies of the West then go into recession, prices come down very quickly again. So I don't see the world changing fantastically from where we are now, but there will be some threats to that. And to a small measure, if alternative currencies increase in their importance, there's nothing wrong with that. But a whole scale move away from the dollar, I think it's unlikely. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So challenging the US dollar as a global currency seems like a pretty huge challenge for anyone. After all, it ticks so many of the boxes that most of the globe's consumer base are looking for every day. For any one country to try and take it head on would probably be madness. What if the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, who collectively make up about 40% of the world's population and 25% of the world's GDP, were to band together in this project? Would it be possible then? Would a BRICS-backed alliance and currency be the thing to finally break the dollar's stronghold of the world economy? Or would any alliance that sees countries as different as these ones inevitably fold at the first sign of trouble? Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Debt and Detriment
it is certainly a trend that we are observing, but it's one that's been observed for a long time. And I don't think that in any way we've hit a sort of turning point in the move away from the dollar over the last year or so. I do believe that the tensions between Russia and the West and the sort of sanctions and geoeconomic tools that the two sides are using against one another represent a true economic war between Russia and the West, which I grade as sort of a level above a trade war, because essentially the trade war that's been ongoing between the U.S. and to a lesser extent Europe, primarily the U.S. and China over the last six, seven years has really been about the spoils of the international economic system and about how they get distributed. Whereas Russia's agenda, it really sees the dollar system as dominated by America and that gives a unfair in Moscow or certainly in Putin's view uh, advantage in not only the international economic order, but in the international geopolitical order. And I think that the one other point that people miss is that the dollar system actually tends to get stronger in points of crises. So the dollar is one of the best performing currencies in the world last year. We saw uh, dollar holdings go back up after the 2008 financial crisis and then the subsequent European crisis there. So when I say that the system is sort of anti-fragile, what I mean is that it gains from instability and strength because the dollar is the sort of currency of last resort and for reserves. Now, the other point is, is that the dollar is also the dominant trade instrument globally, except for in Europe where the euro dominates. And those are two very much interrelated factors. One leads to the other. And I think that's where the dollar's real strengths are, is that a currency like the Chinese yuan uh, could serve as a trade currency, but has a very hard time serving as a financial currency uh, and being used for capital account transactions because of China's continued capital controls and because of sort of the the lack of faith in the Chinese system, and also the fact that there's just not as much Chinese debt internationally traded. So I very much see that there, is, there are threats to it. Russia is actively trying to undermine that system and has been since 2014. Yes, it is a trend that is going on, but uh, I think the Western system is actually emerging stronger from it, and that the real threat is the long-term one from uh, Beijing, but it is not one immediate. And I don't expect that you know we will be talking about the yuan as the global reserve currency, or certainly any kind of BRICS currency actually mattering geopolitically anytime soon. Maximilian Hess is the Central Asia Fellow in the Eurasia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, with his research focusing on the relationship between trade, debt, international relations, and foreign policy, as well as the overlap between political and economic networks. Max is also the former head of political risk at Hawthorne Advisors and the former head of research at AKE International, and is also the principal at M. Natena Advisory in London, and we're thrilled to have him on the program today. One point I think that's important to remember is that government debts and a government's currency are not quite fungible always, but they are certainly instruments that can replace one another, right? And the easiest way to look at that is with what's going on in the banking crisis in the U.S. right now, where individuals are taking their money out of banks uh, that have that offer 1%, 2 3% uh, returns on deposits and instead moving them into long-dated uh, T-bills, U.S. Treasury bills 
bills uh, that pay around 5%. So right now, for holding a U.S. government claim, when a dollar is also a U.S. government claim, uh, you can get 5% annualized interest. And now because of these movements, and because of the fact that there are no capital controls on the dollar, and one can freely move one's assets into the dollar, the impact of this is to sort of create a global market that sits behind every market. So when you think about the fact that there's oil trading largely in dollars or real estate or trade finance, as we were saying earlier, the majority of world trade is still denominated in dollars. It creates a financial market structure to sit behind it and banks and the like then ultimately need reserve assets to minimize their risk. And the key asset there, whether it's a bank in the Philippines or whether it's a bank in the United States or a bank in China, which are some of the largest holders of U.S. Treasury bills, uh, are these U.S. debt instruments. And there the dollar is by far the most attractive. Uh, of course, euros are occasionally attractive as well, but just think about where that money wants to move its assets to, right? Whether uh, we can take the example of a Russian oligarch who may now have found themselves under sanctions but happens to own five properties in the south of France or in many of their cases in the United States, and that's because that property is quickly able to be turned into cash in the national financial system, uh, and whether it's a hedge against Moscow and the Kremlin expropriating oligarchs' assets uh, or against sanctions is, is another question. But historically, of course, a lot of it had been fear that the Russian oligarchs in that case would lose their money. And that same concern and fear extrapolates itself to banks and financial players around the world. Uh, it's important for them to be able to move money, right? So the example that I would give you is Countries maybe that trade with China and that are not geopolitical allies of the United States may be able to denominate their trade with Beijing in the Chinese yuan rather than the dollar. Uh, we, of course, have seen a huge growth of that in relation to Russian trade, but also in the past uh, in Iran and China striking a few sort of swap agreements uh, with other countries over the last year as well. But just because you're trading in that currency doesn't mean that the financial structures behind it are going to be in that currency. And yes, if you are, say, Iran, China, of course, is you know the great global exporter and manufacturer. Yes, there's a lot that you can go and buy from China with those currencies, but to invest in yield-returning instruments and debt to secure yourself, uh, whether you're a bank or if you're in the case of the Iranian oligarch equivalent, wanting to move one's money abroad, uh, then you want a system where that money is easily accessible and where it can be used internationally. So you need a you, you need no capital controls. And the U.S. dollar is the only one that really ticks both of those boxes. Uh, of course, you know, the euro could be a challenger there as well, but there's enough geopolitical alignment between the Europe and the United States that I sort of don't see that forthcoming. And that's where the BRICS countries really run into a major red wall is effectively what they need is a deficit market uh, where with open capital flows uh, where they can go and move their investments into both on the individual scale and on the macro scale. And there sort of isn't really one that is geopolitically aligned with them. So that makes it very, very hard to have an attractive currency on both sides. And for a currency to really challenge the dollar, you, you need one that is attractive both as a trade instrument and as a financial instrument. If we turn our focus toward China for a minute, they've kept their currency artificially low for a long time now, in an effort to keep companies using China for their manufacturing needs, and in turn keep more of the Chinese population employed, as well as improve the state's domestic purchasing power. 
So what would they gain from becoming the global reserve currency like the US is now and having the yuan move freely with the market? There are tremendous advantages to serving as a global reserve currency, right? The argument can be made that the U.S.'s main export right now and for many years has essentially been dollars, and that allows the U.S., despite its, frankly, emaciated manufacturing base over recent decades, uh, to still be such a global economic player. And I would certainly argue that the dollar system and the benefits that it provides the U.S. geopolitically, whether that be through uh, the ability to enforce sanctions, where the dollar system grants that in particular because the U.S. views that sort of any currency, any transaction worldwide uh, that touches dollars effectively comes under the U U.S. jurisdiction and therefore uh, sanctions are applicable, as well as sort of its benefits for the U.S. Uh, continuing to buy large imports uh, at discounted prices um, compared to its own export base in particular um, are geopolitical advantages for Washington that I would say are even more important, uh, in my view, to the international, not just economic order, but geopolitical order than even the U.S. defense budget. And sometimes I worry that uh, the discussion in Washington, D.C. is at best sophomoric and is at worst counterproductive uh, and, and outright damaging um, to the, the U.S. dollar's position. We see that, obviously, with right now as we record uh, the debate around the debt ceiling. I mean, a U.S. government default uh, would be the gravest threat to the dollar system, uh, far greater than anything China or Moscow could wish to engineer themselves, at least without destroying their own economies. Uh, I do think it has real advantages geopolitically for Washington. The economic picture um, is, is a bit more mixed, but uh, I would certainly come down on the side that it has economic tremendous benefits as well. So we'll talk a bit about the BRICS nations a little later on, but I want to get my head around the difficulties in getting a currency off of the ground. So let's start with something a little more realistic. Let's say for the sake of the argument, Moscow wanted to start its own version of the euro, which would either be used by the CIS nations or more likely just the six nations of the CSTO being Russia, Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. With these six in particular, they already do a lot of trade with Russia, they already have massive institutional overlaps. So what stops Moscow from being able to go down this road and form their own CSTO currency? Russia has real problems uh, with doing that. It's long been, since the late 1990s, technically been working on a currency union with Belarus uh, that hasn't gone anywhere, even as Moscow now effectively occupies Belarusian territory since the 2020 elections. Moscow can talk a lot about wanting to do these things, but uh, the actual economic realities of doing them are very difficult. You'll, of course, have to deal with all the claims in the existing currency, and there's winners and losers from that. And then for reaching a sort of larger currency block, of course, the issues in creating the euro and maintaining it were myriad and still exist to this day. If the sort of great fears of the 2011-2012 period um, are now gone. Uh, but, you know, for countries to really enter a true uh, currency union, they need to align not just their monetary policy, but also their fiscal policies. And that is a real challenge because, of course, interest rate differentials play a huge role in how attractive a market is or a currency is for investment. Uh, so, it is very much not a straightforward effort. Um, and then, of course, the countries in that case, other CSTO members or CIS countries, uh, very few of them would actually be interested in doing so for the sanctions implications and the fact that one of the key impacts of the central bank sanctions uh, on Russia imposed in the aftermath of the 
full-scale invasion last February, is that as soon as a hard currency, so a dollar, a euro, euro, Swiss franc, British pound, as soon as that currency crosses the frontier with Russia, uh, because of the sanctions risk, much as in Iran, it is automatically worth less than an instrument of that same currency abroad, whether it be physical or digitally on the other side of the frontier. Moscow's strategy and part of you know this current phase of the economic war with the West is to minimize the discount on its foreign currency holdings, um, whereas the West strategy is to try to make that as large as possible. You know, even Kazakhstan, which is a even they swap out of their ruble trade uh, with Russia into other currencies because they don't want to be holding rubles and they'd have just as little interest in holding a joint currency as well. There's a particularly loud group online who've been told all of this, but still fervently believe that there will be the implementation of a BRICS currency later on this year, with this BRICS currency being backed by gold to prevent any one country's inflation from dragging down the other four. What do you think the likelihood of something like that happening is? You know, one, uh, gold bugs have been around for forever, but the gold standard has been dead since 1971, unless you sort of believe in trustonomics and the economics of quasi-quartang, the disgraced former chancellor of the UK, uh, is very, very unlikely to ever make a comeback. One of the you know real issues there is just the amount of gold that would need to be traded uh, would be exponentially larger than the amount of gold currently traded and produced. And then actually the ability to honor those claims and to move that gold uh, internationally is a huge issue. What gold uh, reserves countries do have is largely in the UK or in the US and in, in New York. And uh, really, when it gets moved around, is moved from one vault to the other. Shipping gold internationally obviously has huge issues. I can't see India being happy with its gold reserves sitting uh, in Beijing, and I can't see Beijing being happy with its gold reserves sitting in New Delhi. Uh, have sort of swap currencies before create related instruments but even that we just saw China we just saw India and Russia suspend their talks there was a swap instrument between the Soviet Union and India in the 1980s that led to significant trade issues in the 1990s because of leftover claims around it and I think that a lot of the sort of gold bugs and the um, arguments made by those who do see a BRICS currency is on the rise fail to take into account those historical developments and when I talk about, in particular, the post-1971 end of the last remnants of the gold standard, the big change that came from that was what we talked about earlier was this move to open capital flows between countries. So before that, um, it was there were quite strict capital controls, including amongst neighboring European countries and ability to move savings and assets from uh, one to the other. And the end of the Bretton Woods system really changed that. And that really um, has a major impact on the viability of gold to serve as a trade instrument in the future. Gold will always be sort of seen as a hedge against inflation. There's enough gold bugs out there that I, I don't think gold as a financial instrument will uh, go away entirely. But it's really one much more for judging market sentiment rather than it is one for short term market sentiment rather than it is one for creating a new basis of an economic order. Well, what about the argument where the BRICS currency would be initially pegged to the US dollar and then eventually transitioned off of it once enough countries around the world start using it more regularly? Does that solve any of these problems or frankly, does it just open up a whole new set of problems? Effectively, if you do that, you're creating a banking relationship. And then um, what you need, and we see this with uh, some cryptocurrencies, sort of like Tether, the cryptocurrency that claims to be pegged to the US dollar and claims to have enough dollar assets to honor that peg, right? 
Uh, there's a lot of doubt about whether it actually does, and I certainly think that there's a lot of fraud going on in that market um, because they don't accurately report or clearly report where those assets are. But in theory, and certainly they claim to have U.S. assets sitting behind them. So if you want to peg it to the U.S. dollar, uh, then fine. Uh, that's just further strengthening the dollar system. Sanctions and cutting off countries from access to U.S. dollars, or the SWIFT payment network, has been a fairly successful weapon yielded by the U.S. against a few countries. But whilst its impact on the Iranian economy has been substantial to say the least, its impact on the Russian economy has been somewhat mixed. Some industries in Russia are doing well, others are doing poorly, others no real change. The Russian economy is nowhere near its potential growth level that it was pre-2022, but it hasn't been as destructive as what it has been in Iran. And we've also seen plenty of countries, even EU states, who've been more than happy to foster re-export markets both into and out of Russia to help Russia skirt these sanctions, knowing that the US is unlikely to extend these sanctions to anyone who's a NATO partner or part of the EU. But overall, the impact on the US economy hasn't been too bad, probably still a net positive in the eyes of most policymakers. But what about if the US were to use this stick again against a country that did a lot of trade with the US, like China as our example? If the US were to try and cut Beijing off from access to US dollars or from the SWIFT payment network, what would the results be for the two countries? So I don't think that they could be used in the exact same way against China as they have been against Russia, uh, although there are many lessons to be learned from the economic war between the West and Russia that will uh, potentially be applicable to tensions between the West and the US in particular and China. But what I would say is the key difference is that because China's economy is so much larger, because they have such a large position in holdings of US treasuries, uh, the fear in the West has always been that sort of China would go and dump its treasury holdings. Because of their role in the Chinese banking system, however, it's really more of a situation of mutually assured destruction. If Beijing were to do that, it would destroy the Chinese economy as well as the Western economy and in turn probably cause a global major depression on the scale not seen since 100 years ago with the Great Depression. And so the U.S. has to act very carefully there as well. You know, we do see some action, sanctions action against China. There's some against, you know, military uh, suppliers that, that have come in recent years, including for their relationships with Moscow. But the kind of financial sanctions that you lay out, SWIFT sanctions, central bank sanctions... I do think that a lot of the pain that we've seen in the West over the last year has been not only the result of Moscow's actions, but also the result of the sanctions against it. That's a cost that I think the West has broadly decided that it is willing to bear in, in the name of supporting Ukraine and defending the international order and resisting Putin's attacks there. But in China's case, the cost would be so large, the risks of doing so would certainly, in my view, probably trigger a global economic depression, the likes of which have not been seen in 100 years. So where do you think US policy on economic sanctions and their ability to wield them is actually going in the next few years? The connection between international economic sanctions and other geoeconomic actions and geopolitics is nothing new. Uh, you know, these tools aren't new. The question is, is when and where is it appropriate to use them? And if you think about it from the Western perspective as well, what strengthens and supports the dollar system and keeps these tools available in the future? And I think Washington has often misused these tools. Uh, there are arguments about that in Venezuela, uh, but certainly in Iran with the United Lateral reimposition of sanctions and the withdrawal from the JCPOA, also known as the Iran deal by the Trump administration. 
Now, I think this is due to a sort of misunderstanding of how sanctions uh, and these other economic tools are effective for uh, the United States and that we use them often as deterrents, whereas what they really are are tactics for undermining the state capacity of the affected state. One piece of evidence uh, for this, I think, is the discussion around President Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow earlier this year, uh, where the U.S. press in particular really said, oh, this is a Russian-Chinese axis, and look at how they're lined up against us. Whereas in my view for Putin, the summit was a great failure. The three things that Russia really wants from China are first, of course, material defense support for the war in Ukraine. Didn't get that. Other thing, deal on the power of Siberia 2 pipeline, the gas pipeline, second major one from Russia to China, which it needs to replace its lost European market. Didn't get a deal on that either despite them saying in February, pre the invasion uh, last year, they were almost ready to reach an agreement. And then the third is uh, a replacement of the loss of Russia's access to Western credit markets as a result of the sanctions with a major growth in Chinese lending and in uh, Chinese financial services. About five major Russian companies have taken out uh, debts in Chinese yuan over the last year, uh, but nothing major and a drop in the bucket compared to what they used to from the West. And there was no announcement of further support, uh, even for st real major further support, even for Russian state banks and trade institutes in that uh, summit. So I think it was very much a sign of Beijing's awareness and Beijing's concerned that Moscow's attempts to undermine the international economic order are actually more of a threat to its own long-term agenda than they are an opportunity to uh, advance it. Now, I worry that because of the West's approach, in particular the hostility from the United States, uh, that we risk pushing Beijing further into that corner with Moscow and then also potentially changing Beijing's view from Moscow as a threat to its agenda to an opportunity to advance it. Every year there are so many stories that come out online about the beginning of de-dollarization, and yet most years nothing much comes of it. But from someone like yourself who understands what signs to look for, what would be a story that would perk your ears up, that would make you take this as a serious threat to the strength of the dollar? I think the gravest threats to the dollar system are internally within the United States. Uh, China has, of course, you know, struck deals with Saudi Arabia, for example, to do some limited trade and settlement in yuan for oil. But again, as we spoke about at the beginning of our conversation, uh, because the financial market to sit behind it isn't there, really, there's still dollar financing underlying it. The real sort of trick that the BRICS countries need to make a BRICS currency or their wider agenda uh, more effective is, I mean, one, the hurdle of lowered and, and much better relations between uh, India and China, but then really they need a deficit market in which the, the financial account savings can be moved into because of the structure of the global economy. The two great deficit markets are Europe writ large uh, and the United States. Any one European country going over uh, to the BRICS country sort of block and supporting them wouldn't be enough there. But if the U.S. were really to alienate itself from Europe, that would risk pushing uh, Europe and giving the BRICS countries a, a deficit market into which they could more easily move their capital and then strengthen their system. So uh, overall, I think the biggest risks are very much, as I said, within the U.S. system. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. 
but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So for the BRICS nations, any hope of dethroning the US dollar would be an incredibly tough undertaking with all five countries largely running export-driven economies, and unlike the US or the EU, with combinations of rich and poor states, some more focused on bringing money in and others focused more on exports. Four of the members are also painfully aware that inviting Russia into this system will elicit a risk of sanctions across all of the BRICS currency. And out of the five of them, the only economy probably big enough to float something like this will be China, who's in no hurry to let the market dictate the strength of the RMB. But what if this became about politics rather than just economics? And these nations were willing to use brute force to sweep aside the dollar's dominance. If the BRICS nations were willing to lump the short-term pain, would it give them the desired long-term gain? Well, to answer that question, we turn to our final guest. Part 3. Funding a Fiasco From February last year, the Russian ruble can no longer be considered convertible because there's so much of currency regulation in Russia today. The Chinese yuan or renminbi has never been convertible. And if a currency is not convertible, you can't really say that it has any clear value as a reserve currency. So neither of these currencies qualifies as a plausible second currency in the world. On top of it, the Russian economy is very small. It is about 2% of the global GDP. So that is completely out. The Chinese economy is now the second biggest economy in the world. But the problem is that its currency is not convertible. Therefore, it cannot really be used for very many purposes. Anders Uzland is a leading specialist on economic policy in Russia, Ukraine, and is in Europe, including serving as economic advisor to several governments in the region, most notably Russia and Ukraine. He's the chairman of the Advisory Council of the Center of Social and Economic Research and on the Scientific Council of the Bank of Finland Institute for Economics and Transition. He's also been published widely and is the author of over 15 books on this subject, most notably Russia's Crony Capitalism and the Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. In addition to all of this, he also served as a Swedish diplomat in Kuwait, Poland, Geneva, and Moscow. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. If you look up on foreign trade, you can sort of divide it into two parts. One is straightforward bilateral deals. One country sells and the other buys. Then you can do it in any kind of currency. It doesn't really matter. But if you look upon commodities, by and large, they are traded many times over. It's said about oil deals that oil is usually churned 20 times. 
then it's a completely different uh, measure. It's vital to have low transaction costs. Where do you have the lowest transaction costs? Obviously, in the biggest the currency in the world, that is the dollar. So not even the, the euro would be satisfactory for such transactions. And 90% or so of what Russia exports is commodities. So therefore, Russia is pretty much condemned to use dollar as the dominant currency. And if it goes for a second currency, it would have to be euro. After the Russian offensive into Ukraine in February 2022, the US implemented heavy sanctions upon the country, going on to seize $300 billion worth of Russian assets and cutting the country out of the SWIFT payment network. This was supposed to have massive economic repercussions across the entire Russian economy, but how much of an impact did it have on the Russian economy in the longer term? The SWIFT connection has not been as important as many expected. And the point is that SWIFT is not necessary for transactions. It's a facilitator of the transactions. It's not the transaction system itself. It's not a payment system. It's a messaging system. So you can make the transactions faster by using SWIFT, but you can anyhow carry out these transactions. And also about 20% of the Russian banking system is still on SWIFT. So it does not have a full effect, but I don't think that we should expect too much from the disconnection from SWIFT. Those expectations were exaggerated. But what were the short-term impacts on the Russian economy? In the immediate aftermath, how did Russia pursue de-dollarizing their economy in the space of just a few days? Well, what happened immediately was that there was a big panic and the exchange rate of the ruble went from 70 ruble per dollar to 136 per dollar in the middle of March. There was then a rush on Russian shops where people tried to buy whatever they could while they still could use their rubles. But what happened afterwards was that things calmed down Inflation peaked in April last year at 17%. The exchange rate came back and was even at some stage stronger than it had been before. The reason was that the central bank hiked the interest rate to 20%, slightly more than double the interest rate, pursued a very strict monetary policy. And Russia's fiscal policy has all the time been very strict with a budget deficit of only a couple of percent. Usually Russia has had a a balanced federal budget. And Russia has a minimal public debt of about 15% of GDP. So you can say that Russia had prepared itself for serious sanctions by having no debt and nearly balanced budget. And the central bank acted fast and radically by hiking the interest rate and making the ruble non-convertible. But somewhat surprisingly, the the exchange rate remains floating. And what about Russian assets abroad? Were these sanctions completely effective in cutting off Russian oligarchs' access to US dollars and overseas holdings? Yeah, now we are moving to Russian assets abroad, and they fall into two big categories. One is private assets belonging to sanctioned Russian citizens. We are not talking about assets that belong to non-sanctioned 
Russian citizens. Altogether, this is about $1 trillion and probably more of financial assets, according to the best estimates. It's Professor Gabriel Zuckman at Berkeley who has provided the numbers, but it's pretty easy. It's net capital outflow from Russia since 1990, which is likely more than $1 trillion. And probably half of this should be frozen according to how many Russians who have been sanctioned. In reality, only $58 billion has been frozen. And you wonder why. There's one simple explanation. Because the Russian ownership is hidden in anonymous companies. The US alone has millions of anonymous companies. Seriously dirty Russian money is typically in layers of 20 to 30 shell companies registered in a dozen different offshore jurisdictions. And then it comes in the end either to Wilmington, Delaware, or to to London, and is invested in one thing or the other, and you can't see what it is. So Cayman Island investment in U.S. securities at the end of June last year, that's the latest official statistics, was $2.3 trillion. On top of that, you had $1.5 trillion of Luxembourg investment in U.S. securities. That's both stocks and bonds, but not including real estate or private equity. So we have an enormous black hole in the U.S. economy, and it's not much better in the British economy. So the Russian money, the dirty Russian money, is hidden in these two jurisdictions, the United States and the the United Kingdom. And we can't get at this money unless we really reveal the ultimate beneficial owners. The other part of the Russian money, it's state money, and that's essentially the currency reserves of the Central Bank of Russia. And that is, according to the Russian Central Bank itself, $316 billion as of January 2022. Well, you can say that it doesn't really matter because it's just that we are exchanging the money at some stage. If the oil comes out on the international market, it is traded usually many times in dollars after it has perhaps been sold first in rubles. So if that was at all done, it didn't work. Russia and China do trade a lot in renminbi, and the foreign trade share of renminbi has been doubled from 2 to 4% of total global transactions, but that's very small. Russia and China do seem to be trading in renminbi, but that means simply that it's more expensive transactions for Russia and it deprives Russia of flexibility. What are some of the qualities that a BRICS or Chinese-led currency would have to have in order to become successful in replacing the dollar's role within our economy? Is something like that even realistically possible at the moment? No, it's completely impossible. And if for good currency, first it should be stable. 
And apart from the uh, Chinese renminbi uh, currencies are not uh, stable. Second, it should be uh, convertible. And uh, the Chinese renminbi and the Russian ruble are not convertible. Then it should be deep. And apart from the Chinese renminbi, these are not big economies. Remember that in the 19 60s, Britain wanted to get out of the pound sterling being used as a reserve currency because that meant that the British pound had too strong an exchange rate, which harmed British exports. So it's only the US with its dollar and the EU with its euro that actually don't mind that their currencies are being used as reserve currencies. Britain is against it since that time. Japan and Switzerland have tried to work against it all along. The Swiss not very successfully, which has seriously harmed the Swiss growth rate that the Swiss franc has such a high value. So it doesn't make any sense at all. And technically, you want a currency to be have a great depth. So for all these reasons, a brick currency is impossible. So we have observed a decrease in the level of US dollars being used within most countries' foreign currency reserves, with the ratio of yuan, euro and yen growing over the last few years. The dollar still has a massive overall position, but do you think it indicates the beginning of a newer trend? Or are more countries just hedging their bets at the moment? And due to macroeconomic trends, the US dollar and its leading role within the global economy is likely here to stay. Well, in the last 20 years, the share of US dollar share of all international reserve has gone down from 70% to 60%. But the, the currencies that have risen have been other big international currencies like Australian and Canadian dollars, Japanese yen, Swiss franc, British pound, sterling. So what we are seeing is that people want for their reserves strong Western currencies that have low inflation and are fully convertible. So why has the share for the US dollar fallen a bit? Well, simply because the currencies, Western currencies go a little bit up and down. The US dollar has been very strong for a few years, but this, uh, the dollar has fallen by about uh, 10% in relation to the euro. So then it's good to have a bit more of a, a euro when such a thing happens. The, the central banks around the world uh, are looking up on that. And right now they uh, have been buying quite a lot of uh, gold because gold is, is uh, rising. So it's uh, just a balancing of convertible Western assets the ruble is nowhere and the renminbi is highly marginal in the reserve world and then primarily in the Russia, quite big international reserves. So the, the dollar and other Western currencies are holding strong and the de-dollarization is just balancing into a broader Western currency basket. It seems that any successor currency to the US dollar will need to tick four important boxes. For one, they'll need to be able to maintain a stability of price. Much of the US dollar's success lies in the fact that companies and countries do long-term deals usually denominated in US dollars. 
because they know that generally US dollars hold their value. This stability of price could possibly be held and achieved by the Chinese yuan, as China historically does have low inflation rates and a fairly stable currency. But if we're talking about a BRICS currency, this becomes much harder to achieve, as when we bring the Russians, Brazilians, or South Africans into the equation, all three of these countries have had massive fluctuations in both inflation and exchange rates. And economists are far less certain of making predictions on those three economies looking forward. The second factor a currency would need to be able to knock off the US dollar would be wide circulation. A lot of people having a reason to use that currency. And in this regard, the US has quite a lot of advantages. For many countries, the US is unavoidable when purchasing oil or many other commodities in the market, mostly because of our first factor, that companies usually donate in US dollars because it's a very stable currency. And if you can buy commodities in US dollars, then you always have a reason to have US dollars lying around. So even small nations who may not do much business with the US directly will always have a need for money to use in the commodity markets. And that's something I don't think I could give to the rand, the ruble, or the real. The third checkbox would be a fair value, that the average consumer can have confidence that that dollar is actually worth a dollar. As chaotic as it might seem to hand over control of your currency simply to the free market, consumers take a lot of reassurance that it's not Joe Biden or Donald Trump that determines the value of that dollar note, but instead the supply and demand of the note itself. It is much harder for a US president to manipulate a currency in order to win an election. But when it comes to some smaller countries, to hand over control of their currency to the market opens them up to other countries being able to manipulate their currency. And much like time Barnes during the Asian financial crisis, things can begin to get out of hand very quickly. And for some of the countries we're discussing here today, like China or Russia, a lot of their leadership will prioritize stability over economic growth and will always be incredibly hesitant to surrender their economic levers of power. The fourth and probably most important checkbox though is wide acceptance as this is probably the hardest one to achieve. The US dollar is frankly so ingrained in our current system. Its status in global finance means that contracts between Argentina and Chile will almost always be denominated in US dollars. There are even bazaars in some of the most remote parts of Central Asia that may not even have internet yet, but will still offer money-changing facilities for United States dollars. Contrary to what you see on Twitter, for now, it seems that the US dollar is here to stay. Now, that doesn't mean we won't see increasing amounts of other currencies taking place in national banks' reserves, or nations like China, Russia, and India boasting larger GDPs and doing increasing trade among the world. But it's still really just the US dollar and possibly the euro who tick all four of those boxes. And like the awful patchwork of a language that English is, I have a suspicion it will continue to reach far and wide, even when much like the spelling of the word yacht, it doesn't make complete logical sense. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. I always love doing these more economics-focused episodes, and this is a topic I've seen far too much half-baked discourse on, so if you're like me and you've always wanted a resource to point toward to say, look, it's a more complicated issue than most people think it is, hopefully this one works for you. But if you want to get involved in that conversation on Twitter and see all the same theories I do, you can keep up to date with everything we're doing here by following us on social media, which you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliottOz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going. 
And speaking of our amazing Patreons, this week I want to thank Rhett Marchant and Brendan Nelson Vice, who are the latest patrons to sign up as of time of recording. This show really is only possible with the support of our Patreons, and we absolutely cannot thank them enough. And I'm very much looking forward to chatting with them at our upcoming Taiwan War Game. As usual, here are three book recommendations. The first is The Dollar Trap by Eswar S. Prezeo for a look at how the dollar took its primary position following the First World War. The second is The Power of Money by Paul Sherd for a look at issues like quantitative easing and quantitative tightening that frankly we just didn't get time to unpack here today. And the third is Women vs. Capitalism by this week's guest Vicky Price for a look at the historical trends and just how deeply US dollars and the system built around them affects our daily lives. I want to give another thanks to this week's guests, Vicky Price, Maximilian Hess, and Anders Azlard, who were absolutely amazing to jump on this one with us. It's not often I get to talk with other economics nerds, so I relish the opportunity every time. I also want to give a big thanks to my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Zivella, Genevieve Donald and May, Nate Ostiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lamb, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tanner, our media director, Raul Devanarayanan, our OSINT analyst, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Derek Henry Flood, our deputy editor, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Munch, our field correspondent. I say it every week, but it's the best team in the business. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. Until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.